Well, you're there in John chapter 15. We're going to finish this chapter today, Lord willing. And we're at a part two of a sermon I began last week entitled, The Type of Person that the World Hates. So we're going to look at, at part two, and I'm going to read chapter 15, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, If the world hates you, now that it has hated me before, or excuse me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning that we're able to read and meditate on and have expounded and taught to us. And we're grateful that the Holy Spirit is here with us, who has given us the ability to understand your word, who is our ultimate teacher to enlighten our minds so that we may understand all that you want us to know on this day. And we pray, God, that as a congregation, that we would be more bold as we want to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever persecution would come our way, Lord, we know that we've been warned so that we can expect to face that kind of persecution as you ordain it for your glory, for our good, and so that the message of the gospel may continue to go forth throughout the world. Help us today as we dig in again that you would be glorified in our time together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the persecution of Christians began in the New Testament. Last week, I shared with you that King Herod the Great tried to have the baby Jesus killed in Bethlehem. One of King Herod's son had John the Baptist beheaded. The Pharisees joined together with the Sadducees to have Jesus crucified. Even Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, was known for persecuting Christians. The first official persecution of Christians by the Roman government came later in the first century during the reign of Emperor Nero. In AD 250, Emperor Decius issued an edict requiring everyone to offer a sacrifice to the gods and to the emperor and to obtain a certificate attesting that they had done so. Those Christians who refused were arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and executed. In A.D. 303, Emperor Diocletian ordered that all churches be destroyed, all Bibles be burned, and all Christians were to be sacrificed to pagan deities. Eventually, the Roman Catholic Church replaced Imperial Rome as the dominant power during the Middle Ages, and the persecution of Christians heated up again. There were the horrors of the Inquisition, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and the English Reformation martyrs under Bloody Mary. Most of us have faced some degree of persecution in our lives. But let's be honest, most likely none of us have ever been beaten for the gospel. None of us, likely, bear the marks on our body, as Paul said he did in Galatians. None of us have been flogged. None of us have been stoned. None of us have been jailed for our faith yet. Many of the martyrs of the Christian faith have left us with powerful words of conviction and joy as their last words before death. There are the words of John Lambert, a martyr under King Henry VIII, while he was cruelly mangled by the soldiers' battle axes 
and while being consumed in a slow fire, he raised his burning hands in the midst of the flames and with a distinct voice exclaimed, none but Christ, none but Christ. There is Lawrence Sanders who suffered martyrdom under bloody Queen Mary. He kissed the stake at which he was bound and he cried aloud, welcome the cross of Christ. Welcome the cross of Christ. Welcome life everlasting. There is John Knox, the famous Scottish reformer, whose dying words were, quote, come Lord Jesus, sweet Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. And again he said, I have tasted of the heavenly joys where presently I shall be. Now for the last time I commit my soul, body, and spirit into his hands. And uttering a deep sigh, he said, now it is come. Maybe the most famous of all is Hugh Latimer, who in 1555 spoke those famous words when he was burned at the stake with Nicholas Ridley. Be brave, Master, Midley, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by the grace of God, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. Hearing these stories of some of these martyrs of church history should inspire us and they should encourage us with the type of bravery that God gave them on those difficult moments on their last day. And these stories should also sober us to look at Christ's words carefully and thoughtfully. Christianity is not Disneyland. It was never intended to be. Christianity is about the joy of Jesus Christ, and that joy in Christ will provide courage so that we can desperately know that he's with us and stand with him and follow Christ, and if necessary, to die with him. As Philippians 1.21 says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what we're learning from Jesus in this passage is that we should expect persecution. Most churches today are trying to skate through the world and the culture, avoiding persecution at all costs because they're also avoiding the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. And I told you last week, we're not going to be that church we're going to be a church that embraces God's word, a church that embraces the gospel, and a church that, if so be it, embraces persecution. We want what the Lord wants, and what the Lord wants is for us to exalt high the name of Jesus Christ, and if they persecute us, so be it. Are you with me? Just checking. The Christian faith offers you peace with God, but not peace with the world. The Christian faith offers you forgiveness from God, but not friendship with the world. The Christian faith offers you a place with God, but you will become public enemy number one with the world. This morning, I want to talk to you about the type of person that the world hates. The world hates Christ and all of those who have been transformed by Christ. The world hates the type of person who has a different nature who has a different master, who has a different father, and who has a different testimony. Let's look with the first one. Number one, the world hates the person who has a different nature. Look at verse 18 with me, if you will. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And Jesus is warning his disciples that being a fruit-bearing Christian will not be easy. Being a Christian was never supposed to be easy. And part of the reason it's not easy is because the world will hate you. And the world is and has always been against Christ. The world and its thinking has always been opposed to God. The evil system of this world has never valued Jesus Christ for one minute. In fact, I think that it is safe to say that Jesus Christ is the most hated man who ever lived. More than Hitler, more than Stalin, more than even Judas himself. The world, whether they be religious or rebellious, 
whether they be civilized or barbarians, whether they be in power or in poverty, the world wants somebody to hate. And they've chosen Jesus Christ. They want to hate Jesus. And so Jesus is telling us in this passage, if, it's, if they're hating you, remember, they, they've also hated me. They've already hated me. And we may ask the question, well, why do they hate Jesus so much? And it's because Jesus calls out the world. Jesus confronts the world. Jesus exposes the darkness of the world. The works of the world are evil. The unrighteous works of the world include sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and idolatry. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it goes on to say that neither those people, nor those who are greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the Jews are not accusing Jesus of doing something wrong. They are accusing him of saying something wrong. The Jews were the first to persecute Christ, and they accused him not, not of what they were, he was doing. In other words, they did not persecute him because of his miracles, and they did not persecute him because of his good works, and they did not persecute him because he was helping others. They persecuted him because he said that he was God in the flesh, because he said that he was one with the Father, because he said that no man comes to the Father but by me. And the Jews hated him for it, and they had him crucified. And so if the world hates Jesus, guess what? Their world will also hate you. Their world also hates you. Verse 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, the Bible teaches that we should love one another, not hate each other. And yet the world hates us, which is an example right there of how they can't be born again and hate Christ and hate Christ's followers. In fact, last week we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 that said, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And we simply examine that the world hates you simply for doing righteous things. The world hates you because when you're walking in obedience to Christ and when you're walking in the holiness of Christ, you, by your very walk, expose the evil deeds of the world. They hate you because you are of a different nature. And I gave you three examples last week of how different you are. Number one, you have a different affection. People who party like to party with people who party, right? Misery loves company. Like attracts like. Druggies attract druggies. Violent people are surrounded by violent people. Drunks surround themselves with drunks. Immorality attracts immorality. And to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. And the world doesn't like you because you now have a different affection. You have a new focus. You have a new devotion. You have a new loyalty. You have a new allegiance. You have a new love, a new fondness, a new friend. And his name is Jesus Christ. And because you love him and because you want to serve him, the world will not praise you for it. They will hate you for it. Not only do you have a different affection, but number two, you have a different purpose. Your purpose is not to go with the flow. Your purpose is not to follow the trends of the culture. Your purpose is not to jump on the bandwagon. Your purpose is to stand for Christ. Your purpose is to swim upstream. Your purpose is to let the love of Christ shine through you in all that you do. Your purpose is to preach the gospel without apology and without watering it down, but to do so in love and in truth. You have a different affection. You have a different purpose. Number three, you have a different joy. Remember, as Christians, our joy does not come from sin. It comes from sustained obedience. Your joy does not come from worldly pleasures. It comes from worshiping your greatest treasure, who is Jesus Christ. Your joy is not wrapped up in circumstances. It is fixed on Christ. And you don't get excited when you're a Christian, about what the world gets excited about, and you don't cherish what they cherish, and you don't delight what they delight in. Why? Because you have a different joy. Your joy is in following Jesus wherever that path may take you. That's where you want to be. 
You want to be under the waterfall of his grace. You want to be walking consistently in his word. And you don't really care what the world thinks about it. The world hates the person who has a different nature. But the world also hates, number two, the world hates the person who has a different master. A says that you are no greater than your master. The first part of verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is no or not greater than his master. And so Jesus is using this illustration simply to say, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, do you really think that somehow you're going to go through this world unscathed? If they did what they did to Jesus, and if you're walking with him, loving him, talking about him, representing him, just as they hated your master, they will also hate you. The goal of the Christian life is not to somehow skate through this world unhindered. The goal is to go hard after Christ. And as you go hard after Christ, expect some people to love you, those who also are going hard after Christ, and some people to hate you. And that may be your neighbor, and that may be your classmate, and that may be somebody who, who, who's in your family. But the idea is our goal is to follow Christ. So we shouldn't try to somehow escape this because our next blank there, and this is where we ended last week, that you will be persecuted just like your master. Again, if we're not greater than our master, Jesus said in the middle of verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you think that it is possible for Jesus to be persecuted and for you to not face a similar outcome? If Jesus was persecuted, if he was oppressed and abused and maligned and badgered and harassed and afflicted and tormented, then so will every servant of the master. How they treat the master is how they treat the servant. And when you stand up for the gospel, you will be persecuted. And when you preach heaven and hell, you will be persecuted. And when you preach that sin is sin, you will be persecuted. And when you preach that Jesus is the only way to heaven, you will be persecuted. And when you proclaim the truth of God's word over and over, and when you esteem God's word and exalt it over cultural opinions, you will be persecuted. Listen to me. You are not moral in the world's eyes if you speak against immorality. You are not holy in the world's eyes if you speak against unholiness. You are not a good person in the world's eyes if you condemn sinful practices which the world upholds as necessary expressions of their worldview. The world will hate you. And they will persecute you. And Jesus is warning us in this passage to be prepared for that. Jesus said in the Beatitudes of Matthew 15, 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter said something very similar in 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, the, and of God rests upon you. Earlier, Peter and John said this when they were arrested in Acts 5, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And we're seeing this thing throughout Scripture. It's coming. Don't be surprised. If it happens to you, you're blessed. If it happens to you, rejoice. If nothing else, it means that your name is written in the book of life. If you go through your whole life and you're never persecuted one time, then you should take a second look at your faith to see how close it is that you truly cling to Jesus Christ. But there is some encouragement here in our message this morning. And it's at the end of verse 20 where we read, your next blank says, you will see some who followed Christ follow your teaching. The very end of verse 20, look, Jesus says here, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Be encouraged, church. The picture is not entirely bleak. Not all is lost. There is a ray of hope. An array of sunshine that Jesus provides here. Although the majority of the world would reject Christ, just as the majority of the world would reject a true Christian today, 
there will always be a remnant. Jesus taught us in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You say, well, Adam, what's so encouraging about that? What's so encouraging about that is that there are those who find it. Not everybody's going to hell in a handbasket. You're not if you're in Christ. Those that you preach to, you may think they're all going to persecute you, and then some are going to come back, and they're going to say, I like what you had to say. I needed to hear that message. I want to know Christ. So we're not expecting everybody to come because there's a wide path that leads to destruction. But we're expecting some to come because Jesus said at the end of verse 20, if they kept my word, they also will keep yours. Again, Jesus could not be more clear. The way is wide and easy that leads to destruction, but there is a narrow road that leads to heaven. And while only a few find it, those who find it have eternal life. Those who find it will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And those who find it will be overcomers. And they will be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So that's the encouraging part. You come through the door, you will be saved. You have access to God right now through Jesus Christ. The door is open wide right now. And all who enter through this narrow door will be saved. But once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you will not be able to get in. So let me ask you, would you rather follow Christ and be persecuted by the world in this life, or would you rather reject Christ and follow the world, but then be punished by God for all eternity? Which one? Because you got to make a choice. You can choose to go with the world today, and they will praise you for it, and they will accept you, and you will become friends with the world. But when you die, if you don't know the true living Christ, you will face the consequences of hell forever. But if, by the grace of God, you respond to this call of God's word in your heart and in your life, and you come through the door of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted in this world, but you will be saved for all eternity. A.W. Pink said in his commentary on John, quote, nothing so stirs up the enmity of the carnal mind as to hear of God's absolute sovereignty, choosing some and passing by others. Then how much worldliness must now be in the hearts of many professing Christians? In other words, We shouldn't be upset by this truth that Jesus said many are called, but only a few are chosen. Rather, we should count it as a privilege. Rather, we should count it as unbelievable truth that God somehow would save your soul, that God somehow would extend grace to you in your darkened state, that somehow that God would open your eyes so that you could see the beauty of Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be chosen by Christ. I was meeting with one of my kids at Starbucks just last week, and we're sitting there, and we're talking through the Bible and talking about some other things, and my, my child looked around. He said, Dad, how many people do you think at this Starbucks are Christians? I kind of looked around. I'm like, huh, probably none of them. <laughs> He's like, well, man, we're pretty lucky to be in a Christian family. I said, hey, brother, hey, uh, brother, son, whatever. Hey, son, it's not, uh, it's not luck. It's not luck. You were born into a Christian family because of God's grace, because of God's grace. And the fact that he's opened your eyes as a young man, it's all of God's grace. And he's like, well, then we should go around and tell everybody in the Starbucks about Jesus. I said, hey, you know what? You're right, but I got to get you to school. So let's go. <laughs> Even your pastor chickens out sometimes, right? 
But the, but the idea is like there's always that remnant, right? There's a remnant of those saved by grace. And if you're here and you are saved by grace, it is all a gift from God. We don't deserve it. We deserve to be on that wide path. But we're on the narrow path if you're in Christ today. And Jesus said, if they keep my word here at the end of verse 20 again, then they will keep yours. Meaning that if they believed and obeyed Christ, then they will believe and obey anyone who teaches the same thing that Christ taught. And by the way, that's my job as your pastor. It's not to entertain you. It's not to mesmerize you with stories and tells, not to joke and laugh at funny anecdotes. My job is to teach you the word of God. And if you hear the word of God, and if you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, you will be saved. And so I'm calling you on this very day that you would come out of darkness and into the light of Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so there's the idea of being saved by grace. But as you're saved by grace, you will walk by his grace. And those two things go hand in hand. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle says in his commentary. He says, mere church membership and outward profession are a cheap religion, of course, and cost a man nothing. But real, vital Christianity will always bring with it a cross. And that's what we're talking about, that if you really hear Jesus's words, accept him into your life, repent of all your sin, and then walk in obedience with him, thus proving that you truly are a born-again Christian, then you'll be persecuted. It's going to come with the cross, but you will be saved. You will be tasting that eternal life. And so the world hates the person who has a different nature. The world hates the person who has a different purpose. And the world hates the person, number three, who has a different father. The world hates the person who has a different father. Your next subpoint says the world doesn't like you because they don't like Jesus because they don't know God. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Now, here in this verse, Jesus is diagnosing the real problem. The Jews hated Christians because they hated Christ. And they did not realize that God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says here in verse 21, they don't even know who sent him. They didn't really know the Father. The God they served was the God of their own making. The God they served was an idol of pride, of self-righteousness, and of religious piety. And if they would have known God the Father, then they would have accepted God the Son. But instead, they hate you because they hated Christ, because they never really knew God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said again in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Did you know that you can be hated just for being a Christian? Because they don't know Christ. They don't know the Father who sent Christ. They don't know God. And therefore, you're going to be hated by all for Christ's namesake. You could be hated just for being a Dodger fan. Did you know that? You could be hated for being a Giants fan. Now, we don't allow that kind of hatred here in our church. All are welcome. Dodgers and Giants are welcome here in this church. But I was at a Dodger game with one of my kids, well, well, actually with all of my boys, and they were scared to go in the bathroom because they were told that one of their friends from school had a daddy who was a Giants fan who walked in the bathroom and got beat up. And they were like, oh, dad, I'm not going in there. You know, and I'm like, that's okay. You got on Dodger gear and you're in Dodger Stadium. You're safe here. <laughs> the problem is if you walk in there with Giants gear on. So don't do that, kids. You know? But it's just a reminder that it's so sad, right, that people you associate with the wrong person or the wrong team, you get beat up. And I'm here to tell you that if you associate with Christ, and if you follow him closely, and if you repeat his words, then you might get beat up. You will be persecuted again for his namesake. Look at your next sub point there. It says the world is guilty and without excuse. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not 
um, if I had not come and spoken to them, then they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Let's look at this verse for just a moment. What is he saying here? When Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken of them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Well, he's not speaking of sin in general, but rather the specific sin of willingly rejecting Jesus for who he is. And this is at the peak of the full revelation and the full disclosure of Christ. This is the most serious sin of all, rejecting Christ. These Jews had witnessed firsthand Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles and Jesus' claims to be one with the Father. And in another place, the Jews even attributed Jesus' miraculous works to Satan instead of to the Holy Spirit. And thus, Jesus pronounced that they had committed the unpardonable sin. Matthew 12, 31, 32, therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so the idea here is that their world is just, they're without excuse. There is no excuse. They saw Jesus Christ. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. And even later, we're told in Romans 1, 18 through 20, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is no excuse. Creation points to the fact that there's a God in heaven. The human conscience points to the fact that God has invisible attributes. Christ points to the fact that God is come to earth in the form of a human being who died on a cross for sinners that would repent and believe. And so it's not because of a lack of clarity that people remain in their sins. It's because of their own depravity. It's their own evil desire to stay in their sinful condition. And then we see in verses 23 and 24 how the world has seen and rejected both Christ and the Father. Whoever hates me, Jesus said, hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Again, he's not saying that if I never came into the world and taught what I taught, did what I did, nobody would go to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that now that I have come, these people are even greater to not give the argument that we have no excuse because it has been made plain to them. And the reason they're rejecting is because they, it's not because they don't know or understand. It's because they hate Jesus and they hate God. And Jesus said in John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Jesus was discussing how the father sent him to earth in John 8, 19, when they asked him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither um, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from the father and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus says this in John 16, 3, and they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. 1 Corinthians 2, 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I don't know how Jesus could have made it any more clear. He's just simply saying in all these references, if you hate him, then you hate his father. Oh, in our vernacular, you can't say, well, I love God, but I don't know if Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, I, I have faith in some higher power, but, you know, I'm not really sure if you could be that exclusive about eternal life only comes through Jesus. Basically, Jesus diagnosing this in principle is saying, no, no, if you don't accept me in all of my words, just the way I gave them, then you're not accepting any faith of any kind that'll get you to heaven. 
So there's no such thing as saying, you know, I'm a nice person, I have faith, the all roads lead to heaven, all you got to do is be religious, all you got to do is keep the golden rule, all you got to do is have faith or go to some type of church that has some type of goodness in it. Jesus is saying, no, you don't even know God. You don't even know what he's like. If you want to know what he's like, look at me. I am God in the flesh, Jesus is saying in all of these passages. And so Jesus said even here when he's talking about now that they've seen him and rejected him, now they have maybe even greater guilt. I mean, it's all unbelievers are guilty of sin, but those who saw Christ and heard Christ and witnessed his miracles have even greater guilt. One commentator wrote, quote, compared with the immeasurable guilt of rejecting the Lord of glory, their personal sins were as nothing. Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for Capernaum. You know why he said that? Capernaum was the headquarters of his ministry. Capernaum was the place where Jesus taught in some of the first century synagogues. Capernaum was the place where they saw many miracles, and yet they rejected Christ. And so Jesus had said in Scripture, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked cities out of the Old Testament that were burnt to the ground by the judgment of God. It'll be more tolerable for them than for those who hear Christ, who know about Christ, and reject him anyway. Have you grown up in church? Have you grown up in a Christian home? Have you heard the gospel preached? Have you read parts of the Bible? Have you heard parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If so, don't let your heart grow cold. Don't reject the love of God through Christ. May your cold heart be melted on this day. May your dead soul be awakened on this day. May the Holy Spirit quicken you today and grant you eternal life. Or it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who walk out of this sermon and in their heart of hearts say, eh, I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't care about it. Listen to me. Jesus died for sinners like you. And your heart is not too hard for him to save. You just need to come and bow before him, declare him as king, repent of all your sin, see the beauty of God's love for you in Christ, see the substitute that Christ placed himself on the cross for you so that you could be born again by faith. Verse 25 reveals to us, that even this hatred and rejection of Jesus was not unseen by God. Your next blank says, the word is fulfilling scripture, excuse me, the world is fulfilling scripture by hating Jesus. This is another one of those um, silver linings in this dark cloud that we're kind of reading through about the persecution. Look what we're reading here in verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is saying that even in this, there is a fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture will not be broken. Everything that the Bible says has a purpose and a reason, and it will be fulfilled. And so Jesus now quotes from two different Davidic Psalms, which basically both teach that if David, a mere man, could be hated by his enemies, then how much more could Jesus, the greater David, be hated by his enemies? I mean, he's quoting here most likely from Psalm 35, 19, as well as Psalm 64, verse 9. And he's just simply claiming that these verses are now being fulfilled in his midst. Yeah, David went through some persecution. He went through a rough time. Jesus went through some persecution. He went through a rough time. But you know what? All of that fulfills scripture. This is exactly what God used to bring about the atonement of Christ. Think about it. God used the hatred of the world and the persecution of his son to bring about the atonement. That's the wisdom of God. You would think that in a perfect scenario, everybody would love Jesus, everybody would accept Jesus, and this story would have a very happy ending. But it doesn't work like that. Lots of people reject Jesus, lots of people hate Jesus, and as they're doing that, they're fulfilling Scripture. And as they did it in the first century, that's what brought about the cross. If they didn't hate him, they wouldn't have crucified him. 
So what we're seeing here is that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. What seemed to be the end of Christ's life was the beginning of yours. When all hope seemed to be lost, you can know this morning that Jesus never fails. His love is never finished. His word will never falter. And they hated him without a cause, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a beautiful thing that even in the midst of this hatred, we see the love of God brought to us through the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one last reason that the world hates you is this. Number four, the world hates the person who has a different testimony. Verses 26 and 27. Here's what we're seeing. Your next blank says Christians bear witness because of the father's words. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. Christians bear witness because of the Father's words. We're going to see here the helper, but first I want to make sure you see here in verse 26, the Father. He's mentioned twice. What we're seeing here is that everything that we know about the Spirit and everything that we know about the Son was initially revealed to us from the Father. I mean, long ago and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by their prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son. God's word has been recorded for us in the Old and in the New Testaments. God gave us the scriptures to testify how mankind could have eternal life through Jesus Christ. God testifies loud and clear at both the baptism of Jesus and on the sermon uh, on the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration about how Jesus is his son. So we see God the Father give a powerful testimony through the prophets, through his son Jesus, through the scripture, through an audible voice. He's testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Not only that, but your next blank says Christians bear witness because of the Spirit's truth. So we're going to bear witness because of the Father's words in the Bible. And we're also going to bear witness because of the Spirit's truth. Because there in verse 26, it says that he's going to send us the helper, who is the Spirit of truth. The helper is the Holy Spirit. The helper is our paraclete. Almost said parakeet, all right? The helper is our paraclete, all right? We talked about this a couple of months ago, right? He comes alongside of us to empower us and to enable us to do what we cannot do in our own power. So he gives us the Holy Spirit. He's our helper. He enlightens us. He empowers us. He enables us to walk in truth and to walk in obedience. And he's our ultimate teacher. And we can give great testimony about the goodness and the greatness of God because we have a Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us and who enables us to preach the gospel. And so because of this, look at your last blank here. Christians bear witness because of Jesus's life. We bear witness because of Jesus's life. So we have the Father's words. We have the spirit of truth who's going to help us. And so basically this all comes down now to verse 27. And you also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying, verse 26, 27, wrapping up this passage about persecution. He's like, look, the father testifies about me. The spirit testifies about me. And you better testify about me. I'm calling you. I am calling you. I'm equipping you. You're my representation on earth. I'm calling you, Jesus is saying, because of my life. And he's saying this to his disciples and consequently to any disciple who follows Jesus, that we have a relationship with him from the very beginning. For these disciples, literally, they were there on the day that they were chosen to be his disciples and they were saved and started bearing fruit. John the Apostle bore witness to Christ's life and to Christ's death. It says in John 19.35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. This refers to John seeing Jesus when he died, and he saw the soldiers pierce Jesus' side, and the blood and the water came out. And then John also saw the risen Christ, and as he ran uh, to the tomb of the resurrection that very morning, John 21, 24 says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, that his testimony is true. So 
John bore witness. All the disciples, minus Judas, bore witness. And so we also, in the same way, are to be bearing witness to Christ. If you've seen Christ through the Scripture and you've heard Christ through His Word, then you have no other part to play other than be a witness for Him. You, you can't do anything else. It's like what Peter and John said in Acts 4, verse 20. They were arrested and beaten up and persecuted for preaching the gospel. They got out of jail, and they were told, don't you ever speak in his name again. And what did they say? We cannot help. We cannot help but to speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. And every time I see that, I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's it. That's what God's called us to do. I can't help it. It's not like, you know, somebody's making me do this. I cannot help as a follower of Jesus Christ, but to speak about what I have seen and what I have heard. Your primary ministry in the world, whether you are a preacher or an elder or a deacon or a small group leader or a ministry leader or a Christian of any kind, if you are in Christ today as a Christian mom, your primary ministry is to testify about Jesus Christ you bear witness about Jesus, not the Republican Party. You bear witness about Jesus, not the Master's University and Seminary. You bear witness about Christ, not about your hobby horse. Likewise, the primary ministry of this church is not political activism, social reform, solving world hunger, or even preventing abortion are keeping our 5013 status. Our job as a church is to preach the gospel and model the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we stand for. That's what we'll die for. And much of today's evangelism is about meeting felt needs. And I'm here to tell you that your only need, other than food, water, and clothing, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about a felt need, it is an actuality. If you are not forgiven, you will die and burn in hell for eternity. Forgiveness is something that we all need because we're all depraved sinners. I can't guarantee you that God's going to do this in your life, and he's going to do this in your life, and he's going to do this in your life, in your business, in your family, but I can guarantee you that he will save your soul from hell. That if on this day you will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that's why as a church we can't help but to follow the model of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why the Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's why 1 Peter 3, 15 says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. And so we are here to bear witness to Jesus and to the gospel. How do we do that? Number one, we must bear witness that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's where it all starts. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we're here today. Jesus is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We better be proclaiming without hesitation that Jesus is God in the flesh. Number two, I want you to proclaim Jesus is our substitute. He's our substitute. This is the whole crux of the gospel, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, for you, that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Number three, Jesus calls us to repent. The first words out of Jesus's mouth in Mark 1.15 was the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe the gospel. When we see Jesus send out the 12 in Mark 6, 12, it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when you preach the gospel like this, the gospel of repentance, you will be persecuted. When you boldly and powerfully preach the truth, the world will hate you. If you hold tight to Jesus, you will suffer for the sake of his name. You may lose your job. You may lose your friends. You may lose your neighbors, and they're going to look at you funny. 
You may not get accepted into a certain social structure, but if you are in Christ this morning, you shouldn't care. What you should care about is loving Christ and living for him, even if that means you are persecuted, even if that means you're beaten, even if that means you're put in jail. Is it worth it to you? You may want to run for safety instead of being persecuted. You may be tempted to remove yourself from the public eye and go underground. You may be tempted to be a secret agent Christian. You may be tempted to water down the gospel. You may be tempted to avoid controversial subjects. But God has called you to put your feet on the rock. And God has put a new song in your heart. And God has put a fire in your soul. And you must preach or die. In fact, you must preach the gospel as a dying man to dying men. You must forsake it all for the sake of the call. And if you do this, you will find no greater joy, no greater love, and no greater peace than the peace that God gives to all those who are walking rightly, who are worshiping passionately, and who are preaching faithfully the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, opportunity for us to... Just look back at your word, God, and to be challenged by what we're reading here about the warning of the oncoming persecution. And yet today we've been encouraged, as we've seen here at least a couple of times, that Jesus said that if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. May we be faithful to keep Christ's words. May we be faithful to preach Christ's gospel. May you be faithful to save all those that you've determined to draw out of darkness and into light. We know that the world hated Christ, and we know that the world hated the Father. And so we're not expecting the world not to hate us. We want to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be unashamed of the gospel. And so I'm praising you, God, for the salvation that you brought to me. And I'm praising you this morning for the salvation that you brought to our church. And may that salvation never cause us to be prideful or haughty or somehow thinking we're a cut above. If anything, may that salvation help remind us that we are soldiers in the army of Christ to be kind, to be caring, but to be truthful and to stand firm in the midst of any adversity, and to preach the gospel at all costs. And if the world hates us, so be it. I pray, God, that you would give us some courage, and I pray that you would give us some compassion, and I pray that you would give us some more unction, that we would be ready this week to let people know that Jesus is God. Only Christ can be our substitute, that we would call people this week to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.